Hi, I'm Eric Ostro, host of Live at the Lord Town. For season four, we continue our focus on art and activism. Why do off-Broadway artists uplift certain causes, and how do those causes make them the artists they are today? And while we gather virtually, we'd like to recognize that we occupy land stolen from indigenous people. Join us in acknowledging this history and consider our role in reconciliation, decolonization, and allyship. Good evening, everybody. My name is Eric Ostro, one of the hosts of Live at the Lortel. I'm very excited for this evening's interview. I would love to bring on my co-host for the evening and my dear friend, Anne James. Hi. Hi, my love. How are you? I could not be better. It is so great to be back here live at the Lortel. Do you want to read the intro? Are you kidding? It would be my no, please honor. please do. Yes, please. Wow. Oh, we are in store for a treat tonight. Camille Brown is a three-time Tony Award nominee and is the first black woman to direct and choreograph on Broadway in 67 years. In addition to her Tony Award nominations, Camille has received an Obie Award, two Aldelco Awards, three Drama Desk nominations, and three Lortel nominations. Here we are. Her film television credits include Ma Rainey's Black Bottom on Netflix and Jesus Christ Superstar Live on NBC. Ms. Brown co-directed the Met Opera's Fire Shut Up In My Bones, making her the first Black director of a Met main stage production. She's also passionate about social dance for social change and everybody move two companies that she is founding and founding for. So please, let's welcome Camille A. Brown. Thank you. Welcome. Hi. We are so honored to have you here. Truly. Um, I know last season we we tried to get you on, but we had some scheduling problems, but I'm so happy that you're here now. And first of all, how are you doing? I mean, it's been a, a crazy, what, two and a half, almost three years. I'm doing okay. I think it's a process. You know, we're still in it. So that's something to remind ourselves of. So it's just, and we're still now, I think, getting used to being back because we were isolated for so long. So it feels good to be in a room with other people. Um, it's still scary because we're still doing testing. So, you know, there's still anxiety around having shows, but uh, it just feels good to create and actually show what you've been creating like past Zoom or something. So it's been great. Wonderful. I just wanted to jump in and ask you this question that I love asking people. It's kind of a an interest of mine to kind of set the tone for, for a meeting like this. If you were a scented candle tonight, what would the scent be? Okay. I have a combination eucalyptus and lavender. I'm going to yeah. dance the, the combination. Nice. I think I just love, I love the, aro the aroma of it. So it's really nice. I Ooh. do too. I'm going to pick that one for myself too. Oh, you are? Yeah. I think so. I'm I want to talk a little bit about. I know you rely on your individual dancers when choreographing and your artists to contribute to the narrative of the storytelling that you're saying, but you've said this it's not. I'm the choreographer and I'm telling you what to do, she urges. It's not like that. It's just like an actor has a line and they're able to say it 50 different ways. I want my dancers to have one step and say it in 50 different ways. I love that. Great. Can we talk a little bit about that and your process? 
yeah, it's just, I, I feel like I create structure and it's up to my dancers or the actors that I'm working with to put their creative identity on top of that. So I feel like my movement or the worlds that I create don't lift off unless the person, the individual who you are steps into that role. And through that, you can make a hundred different choices because to me, I love the idea of choice making because sometimes I know what it's not before I know what it is. And I have to do kind of, yes, no, okay, let's change this, but I need options. I love the idea of choice making and saying things different ways because it tells us which way to go. So it's not really like jumping in and being like, oh, no, I want you to do it this way. I think after a while, once I get a sense of what the story is and we land on something, then I can be more clear about, okay, let's mm -hmm. do it this way. But when we're in the beginning of a creative process, I just like exploring. Like, let's mm -hmm. try this way. Let's try that way. Like I said, I don't know it before I know it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That makes perfect sense. You know, I know you grew up in Queens. I read a lot about you. You were a little girl with a very little voice. Yes. I've read that a lot about you and that it took some time for you to find your voice. And I would love for you to talk about that because I think when we talk about women's or even men's voices being so small and not being able to say what they want or say what they want to do or, you know, whether it's the volume of it or how you say it, you know, the voice as an artist, then you found dance and you were able to. So I would love for you to talk a little bit about about that little girl and where she is now. Yeah, I have a small voice. I still have a small voice and I was really shy. I still am very shy. I used to get teased a lot for my voice. And I know that, I don't know if they do this now, but in school you have class participation. And I rarely participated in class because I was just fearful of how, how I would sound. Even if I knew the answer, I still wouldn't raise my hand because for someone else, it might be as easy as, oh, it's just the, it's just the answer. But to me, it was like moving a mountain. And every time I danced and moved through my body, it was a way for me to feel safe. It was almost like my creative playground and I could step into it and be what I wanted, show my emotions. It's so funny because when you were asking me that question, I'm reminded of a time we, uh, my company and I had a show at City Center, I think in 2017, and we were at a restaurant during the break and someone came up to us and started talking and they asked me what I did. And I said, oh, you know, I have my own company. And they said, hmm. Like you have such a small voice. I don't see you. I don't see you leading anything. I was like, okay, <laughs> but it's just, and that was in 2017. So, you know, it's wow. still something that I still have to continue to push through. I'm wondering but, mm -hmm. who were your biggest influences? Like you talked a minute ago about your process and wanting to know what you don't know so that you know what you know, right. were you Taught that by someone? Did you learn how to create through watching someone? Or who were the people that you looked up to when you were developing your craft? Yeah. So Diane McIntyre's process, she's a Black female director, choreographer, has her own company. Her process to me was magical. It was something that I had never experienced. She was always willing to 
just opened the floor up for conversation. She asked us how things felt. She worked with the musicians a lot. So she was in constant dialogue with musicians. If something didn't work, she wouldn't sit in the moment. She would change it. And it just flipped how I was used to working in spaces. And it told me to not necessarily relax, but relax in like the moment and let something, let it be a living organism. Like you may mm. have something prepared before, but if you come in the room and it changes, go with it because that's, it's supposed to do that. Creative spaces are supposed to do that. So I was really inspired by her. And then Roger C. Jeffrey, who is one, he's like a brother to me. He really taught me about performance and, but also having a business mind too. And just how it's important to have both when you're, when you're in, in this business. So he's wonderful. So those are the two that I'm going to shout out tonight. Yes. So the little girl with a small voice. So tell me, Let's kind of take a little journey. So you really started in tap. Is that correct? I started in tap, ballet, and African. Okay. So how old were you when you started taking classes? Four. Wow. Yeah. So you asked your parents if you could go into it, or was it something? My mom and dad put me in a lot of things. My mom loves dance. My dad loves dance. My mother is a retired social worker. My father is a retired parole officer, but he used to teach salsa dancing on the side. And my mom got me into musical theater. So they both love dance. And I played the clarinet. I did swimming Mm -hmm. and I danced. And my mom loved dance, but she didn't like force it on me. It was just something that I loved doing. So when I was in school, we had the three to six in dance school in Queens. It was called the three to six year olds. It was at Bernice Johnson's Cultural Arts Center. And you could take up to three classes. And the first time I went, my mom only put me in one class because she didn't want to overwhelm me. But she saw how disappointed I was when everybody else went on to their other classes that the next season or the next like round, then she put me into all three classes. So you got a good mom. She's very observant. Yeah. Uh, watching her child just take to something. And I just want to, you know, appreciate your parents for a moment for their artistic leanings and thank God for them because we as a community get to have you in our lives. So thank you, mom and dad to Camille for encouraging you. Mr. And Mrs. You. Brown. So you said musical theater, your parents, would they take you to the theater very often as a, as a young girl? Would you go to, to some dance companies? Yes. Do you remember what, what, would you remember a moment of seeing something when you were like, oh, this is what I want to do? I remember seeing Serafina, mm-hmm. Black, Je- Jelly's Last Jam, Yes. Damn Yankees. My mom took me to see Hansel and Gretel when I was four, but I don't remember that one. Yeah. Um, that was a little, that was young then. Uh, but there were uh, bringing the noise, bringing the funk. Like yes, I, I remember certain like feelings when I was there. Like oh my gosh, this is what I want to do. That 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 changed my life too. That show, I, I remember that so well. It was Save Young Glover, and it was an incredible, incredible show. Yes, um, absolutely. Really made made his career. So, as a choreographer, when you're putting a show together, what do you get up and see? I'm I'm not a dancer. 
I very much appreciate it and love the art form, but I want to get into your head a little bit about your process. So when you're putting something together, do you get up and dance through every track yourself or do you see it in your head first or are you putting up storyboards or is it different for every show? Well, for concert dance, I can say that how I develop movement is I start with how I want people to feel. So there's one piece that I did called Mr. Tolerance, and it's about Blacks right. and uh, entertainment over time, but also minstrelsy and Black stereotypes. So I said to the dancers that I wanted there to be a moment where everyone feels like they're being entertained and they're laughing. And then I wanted there to be a moment where they feel completely uncomfortable and question why they laughed. So we start with that. What does that mean? And then we started talking about, well, minstrelsy. What were the kind of social dances that happened during minstrelsy? So then we start doing that. And then um, I normally set the work on myself as solos first so I can get an idea of what the movement language is. And then once I understand what it is in my body, then I can transfer it to other people. I see. So you are getting up and kind of putting it in your own body before you teach it. Yes, but I'm doing all that thought before. Right, I get it. Yes. And uh, to piggyback on that, do you tell us about your relationship to your dance captains or the people that assist you? Do you have a, a community that you call on? Is it the same team all the time, or do you call on new, fresh people that you see something in? Yeah, I'm going to uh, give a shout-out to Ricky Tripp, who... Uh, has been my associate for over 10 years now. Um, you know, we have grown together in so many ways and he has my back. Uh, so we have done the majority of the um, projects that I've done have been with him. I also want to give a shout out to Maite Natalio, who has been an associate of mine on several shows. Um, Malik Washington, Catherine Foster, Adesilo Sakalumi, uh, Marco Santana, who uh, I worked on Fortress of Solitude with. Um, so I just want to shout out all of the the people that have really helped me through this career. Wonderful. Yeah. So I do have my, and of course it's important while I'm asking them uh, for their time that I'm also supportive of their time too, because they're all choreographing themselves. So I do have a pool of people that I, I pull from, but everyone's not always available, especially now when there's so much going on. So that pool is slowly starting to open. What's your research like before you go into a project? I mean, I know what I do before we even do an interview. I watch interviews you've done. I read everything I can about you. I mean, I know what I do in terms of, of prepping. And when I was an actor a long time ago, the amount of research that I did working on a part. But I'm fascinated by what your research is because you have done so many different kinds of different periods of, of every, everything and everywhere disco yeah. to the minstrel you were talking about. I mean, so many different things. I think that goes back to my mom sharing musical theater and social dance with me because I just know the time periods. I know if you say 70s, I know what that looks like. If you say 40s, I know what that looks like. If you say 1910, I know what that looks like. Wow. Uh, that's just really because of her. And then as I got older, I was also continuing to dig deeper into what the world of African-American social dance is. 
And then just like, for instance, when I was working on Once on this Island, I felt like it was a real opportunity to pull out West African, Afro-Cuban and Afro-Haitian. And I haven't, I didn't have a lot of Afro-Haitian information for me. So I hired Maxine Montalus as my Afro-Haitian consultant. And so she would teach me some things and, and give me information. And I told her that it's like, okay, now we're doing this, but it's not a cut and paste. Like I'm not doing this to just put it over here. Like it's just for me to be informed. So then when I'm in the room and ideas are coming, then I have a source to pull from. So it's not only the West African and the Afro-Cuban, it's now also the Afro-Haitian information that can be put mm. into the show. Mm. So it, now that we're talking about Once on this Island, which was an incredible revival, and what a, in, just a phenomenal show. And you're 10 out of 10. Uh, it was just one that you just want to get up on your feet and scream and yell and laugh and cry. And it just was a magnificent revival. That was probably a different theater for you to work in because it's circle, you know, it's circle and square. So it's, what's that like going from proscenium to the round to circle and the square to all these different kinds of, you have to keep changing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so when we started Once on this Island, I was also starting a new work for my company. So there's a duet called Turf and it's two black males that are dancing about uh, brotherhood. And it's a more like a boys to men rite of passage kind of thing. And they're constantly circling around themselves. And it's because I was practicing how to work in the rounds because I, oh, I wow. had this island coming up. They were kind of working aside each other while yeah wonderful yeah because i knew that was my first time doing it and so i used the opportunity while i was already in the creative space to just think about well what if this revolves how can you mm -hmm. keep the, how can you keep the mind or interested with them constantly turning around and you probably won't see it i mean that duet that I'm talking about for my company is done in a proscenium. So you probably won't go, gee, I wish this was an, or maybe you would, I don't know, but you know, it's done. That's done in the proscenium. Yeah. What was your experience like working on once on this Island? Oh man, it was scary. I mean, everything is always scary for me, but it was so fun with the people in the room and Ricky Tripp was my associate and Catherine Foster was my assistant choreographer. So we had a good time. We had a good time in the room exploring. That was my first Broadway musical. So I was really excited about that. So yeah, it was good. So Camille, what do you do when you say you're scared? Yeah. You know, it brings me back to that little girl with this small voice. To me, yeah. you don't have a small voice. To me, to be in a room with you, I would listen. Everybody would go silent, of course. But what do you do to overcome the fear and overcome being scared? Because that's yeah. the first word you used. You said, I, I was scared. I'm scared. I lean into the fear. That's what I do. And I ask myself, if you don't do this, if you don't make this decision, are you going to regret it in five years? That's a good so question. It always makes me, even though things are super scary that are before me, I always ask myself, well, are you going to regret not doing it? I want to know, what can you share about your leadership? I, we've been talking about your leadership in professional situations for the stage. 
in performance, but I'm wondering more about your advocacy work and your work as an educator. Can you tell us how you lead those types of rooms and tell us a little bit about what you're doing on that end? Yeah. Social um, dance versus social change and everybody move. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, in terms of leading a room, I had my teachers who taught to my body and I felt that I was seen. And then I had teachers that did the complete opposite and I felt invisible. So as a leader in the room, I always wanna make sure that everybody feels seen. And I don't know if I would have been so in tuned had I not had the experience of rejection. So that is one of the things that I use in terms of being a leader is like making everyone feel seen because you don't know who you're talking to in the room. You could be talking to the next like producer or the next like director or the next stage manager. Like you don't know what you're instilling in them and how they're going to respond to it. So that's one of the ways that I use leadership, but just in terms of everybody move, everybody move came from another initiative I did called Black Girl Spectrum. And Black Girl Spectrum came from a piece that I did called Black Girl Linguistic Play about Black girls and the maturation from girlhood to womanhood. And as a creative art maker, you create work and you don't know if it's going to succeed or not. Some people may like it. Maybe people don't. I don't know. So I didn't know how Black Girl Linguistic Play was going to be received. So I said, well, let me make like an initiative that's talking about Black girlhood, that is talking about these African-American social dances that I'm pulling from and Double Dutch and everything and make it like a, a guide, a guide and something that we can, that girls and Black girls can use and can really be inspired to move through their bodies. And so we tried Black Girl Spectrum and thankfully Black Girl Linguistic Play was received well. So Black Girl Linguistic Play and Black Girl Spectrum were able to live together. And then the next stage of that was Black Men Moving, which had the same premise of instilling like liberation through movement. And then I said, well, why don't we do everybody? (laughs) And now we got everybody moved. (laughs) So that's pretty much how that came about. And then Social Dance for Social Change. I've always said Social Dance for Social Change. And I'm not, I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying that as if I'm the first one to say that, but I'm saying that that kind of came about it kind of rose during COVID, but it was something that I had been saying from before COVID. But when the shutdown happened, it gave us an opportunity to reach people in another way because people were isolated and we wanted to still give people a sense of of freedom, even though people were isolated. So uh, Social Dance for Social Change was also a way to educate people too, to let people know that this is intellectual study that we're doing. We're not just talking about flapping our hands. This is a technique. So inviting scholars that I knew to really talk about their work, to talk about Lindy Hop, to talk about hip hop, to talk about all of the things that people use on the stage. What are we really looking at? And we need to know. And if you don't know, here are people that can show you. Was this all done online and people could kind of log on and and watch? Did you hold these on Zoom or were you doing them in person? 
we held them on Zoom for the shutdown. Mm -hmm. And now we're doing, I have a, a, Michelle Rivera is the director of Everybody Move. So she is in charge of the whole thing. I feel like Everybody Move has taken on another life now. So she's the director of that. And I think we've had about 500 workshops this year. Wow. No, wait, not this year, because it's 2022. That's a lot of workshops since Wednesday. Sorry. Okay. <laughs> Last right. year. Since 22. No, since 2023. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Copy that. That's right. a lot. But that's still a lot. And, that's still um, a lot. Yeah. Yeah. And it was for, based for any age, or was it for young people? Any age. Any age. Yeah. yeah. I'm wondering about ability too, like accessibility. Have you had the opportunity to work with people with uh, neurodiversity or disabilities within everybody move? Absolutely. Yes, we do. I mean, it, it is, it is truly for everybody and it's, and it's trying to find what is your entry point. So if we are only working our arms, let's just really work on the arms. What world can we create with just the arms? Or what world can we create with just the legs? It's like creativity has no bounds. Let's go back a little bit. It wasn't that long ago, but I would love to talk about your production of For Colored Girls Who Have Considered Suicide When the Rainbow Is Enough. I know a group of my friends did that show in college and it was a great production. Yours was absolutely stunning. Unfortunately, it closed before, closed way too soon. And, you know, I'm sorry about that. It must have been a disappointment of, of some kind. But I would love for you to talk about your process for it and those incredible artists that were in that. That was your first time directing and choreographing something, right? Yes. Yes, but my friends and my family had to remind me that I have been derived. I've had my own company for over 15 years. And they said, Camille, you have been doing this. It's just, it's in a different venue. Yes, it, the stakes may feel different. And yes, it may be a different way of like navigating it. But in terms of like telling a story, they were like, you know this, you know this, because I was so as I said, scared and nervous about really wanting to do it. But it was supposed to come in in spring 2020. And I didn't feel like I was ready. I didn't have like my vision in place. And the shutdown happened. And it gave me an opportunity to have a process. There were a lot of horrible, disastrous things that happened because of COVID. So I do want to acknowledge that. For me as a creative, it gave me the space to really figure out what I wanted to do with the story. How does Camille want to tell this story? This show is over 40 years old. Now, what are you going to say about it? You know, this poem has been done a thousand times. How are you going to say it? I wanted the poetry to like live inside of me. And I'm glad that I had the year and a half to do that. I had a couple of bubble residencies with my company where I was just working and shaping and trying to figure things out. So by the time we had official rehearsals with the actual cast, I knew how, where I wanted to start, how I wanted to start and how I wanted it to end. And there were definitely pieces that I said, okay, we're gonna discover that in the room. But the overall shape was really something that I'm so thankful that I had the opportunity to actually do through the shutdown. Well, talk uh, about it. I, I'd love for you to get a little bit 
more specific about your production. I mean, we could talk about this for two hours. I mean, it, it is such an um, incredible piece of art. Um, and your point of view on it was so nuanced and, and beautiful. And I'm going to be the black woman interviewer for a okay. moment. I can't, be, I can't be that. So go ahead. I just have to tell you that I saw your show with my 14-year-old niece at the time. And I was so excited to bring this work to her at that age. And I just saw her not really understand what was going on, but that she was in this theater. It was her first Broadway show ever. Wow. Was your work. Wow. And I saw her turn from this kind of uncomfortably shy, uh, you know, disoriented young girl into a young woman during your show. She was leaning up in her seat. People were hooting and hollering and responding. I mean, I really, she looked at me after the show and said, and, and I feel different. Mm. And I said, because you've seen art. Mm. You have seen a piece of art. Mm. I could go on, but I just, as a black woman, yeah. With a black niece yeah. telling you that what you did, and I know it was hard, and we're going to talk about how hard it was, <laughs> but I just want you to know the impact that you had in, in our lives that afternoon. Thank so you. thank you for that as a black woman to a black woman. Thank you, black woman. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, a, a gay white man, I, you know. Yeah, you are right. You are right. Yeah, I'm okay. but you know, I I felt the same way. I mean, if theater can change you within those two hours, if you if something changes and you are talking about it and you are thinking about it when you leave that theater, you've you've done it. You've you've succeeded. So I would love to know what what were the obstacles in it that you had to come over or were there any? Yeah, the first obstacle was getting out of my own way because I found that I was getting really inside of my head about this is a revival. You know, I feel like there's somebody who's either done it, choreographed it, directed it, been in it. It's like one degree of separation between people that you know. So I had to just say, Camille, just do you. Whatever it is, do you. Don't worry about whether people are going to like it, whether whether you know it matches someone's thesis that they wrote about it. Like, oh my god, on what it, the show means to you. So that's really one of that was the major obstacle that I had to get over, and thankfully I did get over and through that. Once I got over that and just said, tell the tell the story, then. The challenges were about how you want to tell the story. You know, in the beginning, I didn't want any pre-show music because I wanted the first of the first sound you hear is to be Ender Jacques' voice. And I asked Don Sutton, who is the estate holder, was there any text or anything, any sound bite that Ender Jacques had that we can possibly use to open the show? And he sent me uh, this opening from a PBS special where she's literally introducing 
the show for, uh, for Color Girls, and she's talking to her daughter, which who was a child at the time. And I just thought, oh my gosh, this is perfect. You know, this is like this is how I want us to start the show with her honoring her. And I also wanted us to start on a high. The first poem is Dark Phrases, which is very serious. But I wanted us to. I wanted the power to start with us. And we are powerful. We are strong. We're going to take this journey. It's going to be hard at times, but we own the day. I wanted us to start there. And then I just started thinking specifically about the poems and like graduation night. For some mm. reason, WV's I'm So Into You was always in my head for that. And I was like, this would be really dope if it was done to that because that was one of my favorite songs growing up. You know, I tried to like play it, you know, when we weren't in rehearsal trying to play it to them. I was like, oh yeah, I think this would, I think this would really work really well. So that was one. And then another one was Toussaint and just trying to, it wasn't necessarily what was going on with the text. It was what was happening around the text that I found very challenging because I thought, okay, I know it may have been done for them to play like they are little girls aligning with her, but what if mm -hmm. they turn, what if they're these imaginary toys that actually move and shift and position themselves and abstractly make the picture? So it's not, it's not an obvious space, but it's kind of like they're creating worlds based on their movements. Mm. Uh, I love that. I love yeah. that you said, you know, I, I know we're all very proud of your work, and I know that you you are very proud of it as well. But you say people were able to see the other side of you in this piece. Is that right? <laughs> I think that it was my voice. I think people who hadn't seen my work, like in the director's mind, mm -hmm. uh, you saw who I am if I'm helming a show. This is Camille's take on it. So I think that's what I was saying in terms of like, if you didn't know, what did I, what did I say? What was the quote? <laughs> I'll tell you, hold on. Okay. Hold and then I want to talk about the pregnant woman in the show. Oh, Kanita. Kanita. Yeah. Yes. You said that I, you said you work and you did on the show because you say people were able to see the other side of you. And I, I just wanted to know what that other side was. And you explained that very well. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, tell us about Kanita and how that was working in such a boisterous space, but with such a a special little cast member. No, <laughs> um, she was wonderful. I mean, I think to see the cast holding space for her and holding space for each other was something that I feel very blessed to have witnessed throughout that process and to see Kanita grow because we were in that rehearsal time, maybe including previews, it's about two months. So to see her grow, to see all of them mm -hmm. like grow in the world, but her physically grow mm -hmm. and for her to perform that, that poem specifically about losing your children in the midst of her preparing to give birth to her own child, I thought that was really important to see. And just when they all come around her and they do touch her belly too, I think it also speaks to the care that we have for each other and that sisterhood too. So it was beautiful to be a part of that. And I remember asking Kanita to do the show and it must've been 2020 
early 2021 when I we were on Zoom and I told her like I think she would be amazing as the lady in red. So to then see her as the lady in red, like you said, with a with a, a little member, uh, <laughs> a little cast member was was beautiful. Here's another thing I would love to know about Johnson Faust, who was an important influence on you, taught using drums. And I read that you said the drums would play a rhythm and then we would have to mimic the rhythm, Brown said. Oh, Sean Johnson. Yes. Sorry. Yeah. 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 Um, so I, I, and you say, so I feel like a lot of my influence is based on how I was trained and tapped, feeling the rhythm and just playing with all of that. We were young. I was like 11. I didn't realize what she was giving us mm-hmm. till now, right? Yeah. I mean, that level of information the idea of like hearing a rhythm, you know, you hear a rhythm when you're going in the train. I know a lot of dancers kind of, or musicians mm-hmm. may hear that, but you know, the the way that we were riffing, the way that she so early connected us to the drum, I think that's what I was saying that I didn't necessarily know what she was giving us at the time. She was giving us like legacy and ancestry and like history. She was giving it all in that one setup of allowing us to riff and communicate to the drum. I love that. You just mentioned ancestry. I have a wonder. I'm wondering, you know, there's a love for ancestry and the ancestries in this new, I call it a new black arts movement. I feel that there is something coming down the road for us as black performers and this creative opportunity to bring our ancestors into the present with us in our work. Can you tell us a little bit about your ancestry practice or if you have one? Mm -hmm. It's prayer. It's, I feel like it's listening. I think mainly it's that really giving yourself to it, knowing that your ancestors have you honoring your ancestors in a way of like, wow, they prepared this space so we can go through. And I can't imagine the hardship because we today still go through our obstacles. Um, As a black woman, I'm still dealing with the tropes and the stereotypes and all that stuff. And to imagine what Catherine Dunham must have felt like, as you said, 67 years ago, that's powerful. And so I listen, I try to listen a lot and just have a lot of, a lot of gratitude. And to think about, when you think about ancestry, I feel like you also have to think about how you're paying it forward too. So it's always like circular. It's always coming around to, and now what are you going to do? Yes. We are ancestors of the future. Yeah. 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 I love that. that. I'm not going to let you go without not talking about (laughs) Jesus Christ Superstar. Yeah. uh, What you did for NBC, which was your first real big job for TV. I mean, that was a huge, huge undertaking. Yeah. Let's talk about that experience a little bit and what it was like working for TV and what it was like to work with all of those incredible artists. Yeah. Um, You know, not only just the leads of it who were incredible, but all your incredible dancers up there. Yeah. It was one of the most amazing experiences that I've ever had in theater. It was, okay, we're going to use this word again, scary. Because I've said it a million times. It's okay. Um, 
It was scary because it was, like you said, my first TV gig. So there were a lot of things that I had to learn in real time, but I also had to trust my instincts and what I did know. So there was a combination. And I feel like in everything I do, there's always that combination of learning in real time and then trusting my instincts. And then just the way David Laveau, who was the director, was leading the team. Yes, there were millions of people that were going to be tuning in. But the focus was, let's create art. Let's create a show that touches people, that just happens to be shot through someone's TV screen. And that's what I came away from, how he empowered his collaborators, how he empowered us. Well, I was his collaborator, so how he empowered the team, how he empowered the company. It was just, it was magnificent to watch. It how was. Much, how much did you learn? I mean, you must have had like a, you know, you were shot out of a cannon. Oh, yeah. Learn all of the different TV angles. This yeah. is going to be here. This is going to be here. Camera one, camera two, camera three. Yeah. I mean, you must have had a, uh, you know, a day, a day or two of education for that. And then to be yeah, able to put your dancers up. Yeah. Yeah. That was a, we were in tech for about a week. Yeah, and there was one scene that there was a crucifixion, the crucifixion scene, and John Legend was uh, supposed to take the cross from one side of the stage to the next. And then we got on set and realized that there was a lot of it was a lot to pick up with the camera, so we had to take it out. Now in the studio, I had choreographed everything to work around that one moment. So in three hours, I had to change the basically the entire shape of it in order for us to for it to look like a complete thought. So that was my brain was going so fast, just like, how can we do this the most efficient way without, you know, it's a it's a lot of information that I'm getting. It's a lot of information that we're giving the cast. How can we all work the most productive and efficiently? How much rehearsal time did you have for you and your dancers? And how much prep time did you have before you went into the studio? Yeah, I started with the cast. So we had the ensemble for, I think, about three weeks. Oh, okay. The dancers were added maybe two weeks before we went into tech rehearsal. And then there was about a week before where David and our collaborators had some pre-pro time to set things up. So what was that like turning that TV on to, uh, well, we grew up with Channel 4, right? Yeah. On NBC? Yeah. Putting that on in New York, Channel 4. What was that like to, well, you were there, but. Yeah, I was there, so I didn't. I mean, <laughs> but I mean, your family at home and all your relatives in Queens turning on Channel 4 and seeing you know, their little girls work. Yeah, I mean, it was exciting because I knew the shots by that point because we right. had first what it was. So I was just excited for them to see like what, what I was seeing. You know, I don't know if people, I don't know if some people believed that I was doing it. There were, <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> of, I, don't, I think because it was such a big, it was such a big thing. Yeah. I think because it came out of nowhere that I was doing it, that it was like, are you sure you did that? It's like, yeah, that was me. How did the job come to you? David Laveau called me and asked me, did I want to do it? Wow. <laughs> and brilliantly, you said I, yes. I, was, I mean, I was ready to like just 
say, you know, try to try to, I thought it was going to be like an interview, you know, I didn't know who else was, you know, I was ready to just like, and he was really inviting me on the team. And I was just like, whoa, I wasn't, I wasn't expecting that. Wow. You know, again, just like Fortress of Solitude was my first Mm -hmm. musical theater experience. Jesus Christ Superstar was my first TV experience. And both David Laveau and Daniel Auken, director of Fortress of Solitude, they could have gotten other people to do it. They could have gotten people that had way more experience than I did. So, and now that I know far more than I know now about the business, it's like, oh yeah, they really could have got somebody else. this business goes. So, you know, I'm very grateful to them that there was a lot of, there was a lot of trust there and they believed. Sometimes it just takes people to believe in you. That is so true. I mean, Eric, can we talk yeah. about the Metropolitan Opera now? Can we Absolutely. ask the question? Yeah. <gasps> okay, <laughs> that was amazing. And you were in the right place at the right time and it was your time. So I'm going to share that with you. I really believe that. And there was another instance where I'm not bitter, but I couldn't get into Porgy and Bess or fires shut up in my bones because they were sold out solid. Mm-hmm. I could not get in. I oh. wanted to see both of them so badly. Can you tell us the difference between working on something that was crafted today, basically, and something that was crafted a while back in our American musical opera history? What were the differences that you felt in approaching those two works? Yeah, I mean, well, one was a white team, which was Porgy and Bess, that was written. And the other was Casey Lemons, who is the librettist, and Terrence Blanchard, who is our composer, and it's a black team. So what does that mean for us to tell our stories through our lens? What does that look like? You know, we had a full-on HBCU scene Mm -hmm. up in that opera, in the Metropolitan Opera. Like that was that was written in by Terrence and KC. And I just was thankful enough that they gave me the opportunity to create my version of what that HBCU step scene looks like. But that's one main difference, like the lens. It could be said that that's simple, but it's really not. It's actually the it is actually the shift. Yes. Yeah. Beautiful. Beautiful. You know, Camille, we're coming to the end of the hour. It's gone so quick. No. Um, tell me how the evolution of dance in your mind, how we can bring about social change. Well, I think we have to give each other grace enough to move through the space the way we're going to, the way we need to, because people need to be themselves. We need to be free. People need to believe. That's what leads to change if you believe. So I'm just going to leave with that. I think there are a lot of things that I could say, but I think there's nothing like when you believe in yourself, there's nothing like when you believe in a, um, and not intention, but if you believe in like a path or a journey or a space, Mm -hmm. like there's nothing like belief. And if we just hold on to belief and if we hold on to our joy, then Mm. I feel like that will lead to change. And do you feel like we are, Jocelyn Bio, who's an incredible playwright, said, and she said this so beautifully, she said it was like an enormous ship 
that is slowly turning, mm. very slowly, slowly turning. Do you feel like we are making a shift towards some sort of change? I feel that. I definitely, I definitely feel that and totally see that whole thing. But we have to keep challenging. It's like, keep moving it. Keep moving it. Because sometimes we go, oh, we changed. Oh, we moved a little. All right, well, I can take a break. Right. You know, no, we can't. No yeah. It's like, keep, keep your focus on the goal and keep it turning. And it might not get all the way in our lifetime, but that's part of that's part of what this is. When we talk about ancestry, when we talk about paying it forward, that's what we're talking about too, continuing to push that boat and push that ship. Yeah. Is there anyone that you are absolutely obsessed with right now in the dance world? Who do you look to when you're like, ooh, I wonder what so-and-so is doing? Is there someone like that in your life right now? Oh, I mean, I have many people, but I'm just going to say Ricky Tripp because he is someone that I love so much. And we have been in this together. We have shared every emotion possible. And I get to, I don't have to ask what he's doing because I get to live in it and I get to see it. So that's who I would say. What is your vision for theater? dance, the arts for the next few years when we're, I mean, we are slowly coming out of it. I know we're still kind of in it, but what is your vision for what you'd like to see in the next few years? Oh, what I'd like to see in the next few years, just continued opportunities, black women, black female choreographers, black directors, stories of color continue and any all kinds of stories but i think i hope that is like macro mm -hmm. but micro is i hope we all keep leaning into the danger of like what does it mean for us to be ourselves that's what i that's what i hope that all of us do because that's really when we're going to see all of the stuff that we envision if we lean into the fear and lean into what it means to actually shift ourselves first and then see the world shift because we did it first. Mm, that was a beautiful, beautiful way of saying it. Thank you. And do you have a last question for Camille? I have just one and it's, you know, kind of a selfish question, but um, <laughs> what are you working on now or what's, what do you have upcoming that we can look forward to? Or, and if that is, rest yeah it, let it be rest yeah rest is on rest is on the docket so we <laughs> that on there but champion which is terence blanchard's first opera is going to be at the metropolitan opera so i'm working on that i'm worked i'm doing a new piece for my company and then working on soul train the musical <gasps> which, yep which is directed by camila forbes and booked by dominique Marceau. and mm -hmm. then i'm working on a project uh for the public that's going to come around next year so i'm excited i'm excited to talk about that when i can talk about it okay we can't talk about it right now All right, not yet okay well i thank you from the bottom of my heart for opening your heart and your and your mind to us. I think we got to know you a little bit better and I can't wait to see what you do next. You, you are a, you're a true talent and thank a beautiful you. artist. So thank you for what you do. 
Thank you. Thank you so much from the bottom of my heart. I feel that we will see each other again. And I just appreciate sharing this time with you. And thank you to Live at the Lord Tell and Eric so much for having me. with This exciting, dynamic titan of a woman. Thank you. Who I think has a big voice. (laughs) It's big to me. That's our show, (laughs) ladies and gentlemen. For our next episode, which will be recorded on February 27th, Joy D. Michelle and I will speak with actor, writer, director Fedna Jaquette. Fedna most recently starred as Passenger One in Lee Daniels' production of Ain't No Mo. As a writer and director, her film Shante Maman Mwen, My Mother's Song, most recently was honored at the Urban Film Festival. She is a 2020 to 2022 National Black Theater Playwright in Residence and 2019 through 2021 Huntington Theater Playwriting Fellow and a 2019 NYSCA, NYFA Artist Fellow in Playwriting Screenwriting. We will talk to her about all of that, as well as her cause, the Stepping Stone Foundation. Then on March 20th, my friend John Andrew Morrison and I will interview Tony-nominated and Grammy Award-winning actress Danielle Brooks. Danielle most recently starred on Broadway's In the Piano Lesson and also starred on Broadway as Sophia in The Color Purple. Danielle is the co-founder of Black Women on Broadway, which honors the legacy of Black women's contributions to the theater. More information about these and future guests, as well as how to attend recordings online, can be found on our website, liveatthelortel.com. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Camille A. Brown. Thank you, Ann James. Please stay healthy and please support your local theater. Go to the theater. It's open. These artists are bringing so much to the stage and we need you to support them. Stay safe. Have a good night. Good night from Live at the Lortel. This podcast is brought to you by the Lucia Lortel Theater. Live at the Lortel is produced by George Forbes, executive producer yours truly, and associate producer Jeffrey Schubart. Press is provided by Sin Gogolak, GoGo Public Relations. And special thanks to Nancy Hurwitz, Alana Candy samuel Mara Levinas, Carla Liriano, and Ellen Chan. Live at the Lortel Sound Engineer and Mixer is Brian Falk at Abacus Entertainment. Thank you so much for listening.